0: after uh, my wife uh, gave birth to our first child, it opened my eyes to a brand new world. Uh, I was completely unaware of a completely hidden and unaware dad culture. The idea of a dad culture is comes with dad jokes and a dad look. And Dad's style, and of course, Dad's stories, but probably the best of them all is an obsession over how the lawn is growing. I uh, didn't realize how much those would be. I'd be growing into those. Uh, but just two weeks ago, I thought I'd never be in this place. my daughter says to me, she says, "Dad, I'm hungry." And I say, "Hi, hungry, I'm Dad." (Laughter) <laughs> I, 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 I just about threw up in my mouth, uh, but I'm finding I'm slowly, over the course of six years, I've been slowly adopting dad culture. But one thing about dad culture that came to a surprise to me is the dad stare. You know that dad look when he's upset with you and you are doing something that is nonsense and he gives you that look and it stops you dead in your track, right? I... Uh, I noticed I stole my dad look from a former employer every time I would tell him something he would like you know puff up his his eyes and he'd look at me and so I, I tried this with one of my kids not too long ago and I found actually it was very effective <laughs> um, rather than saying anything my kids were like I'm sorry I'm sorry I won't ever do that again uh, but the idea of this dad stare is that it's usually rooted in a love or a care for the child to stop whatever the behavior is and I know some of you have had a rough relationship with your dad in the past. And it has been hard for you to relate to your dad. But in some ways, in some fashion, there has been a father figure who's come alongside you in your life. And the thing about a father that is significant is that while kids love their moms more than their dads, their dads provide something unique for their kids. They provide a lifestyle to imitate. You talk to anybody about why they do certain things, and a lot of times it's, well, that's how my dad did it. For good or bad, there's this, well, that's the way that my dad did it, and so that's the way I'm going to do it. And so our dads leave us patterns to follow. And so as we think about our dads, the better the father figure that we have, the better the father that we have, the better life that we have to imitate. And so we've been in 1 Corinthians this past month, and Paul has been writing to the church in Corinth, and he started this letter starting with a necessity of unity within the church. And so for us, as we've been finding that we've been divided on a lot of different issues, it has been super challenging for us, but it's been fitting in this season. Now so the past three chapters, Paul has been talking about factions and divisions and how all of these come through, and he's been really laying out the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of the world in the last three chapters. And so chapter four is really the point that he's making with godly wisdom versus worldly wisdom. And so he's pointing out something that these factions, while they're bad, they are stemming from something that is worse, and it is a problem of the heart. Last week, Pastor Kevin talked about Christian maturity and how we must be rooted in the understanding of who Christ is. This week, we focus on leaders. Paul is correcting very bad thinking about the church in Corinth and how they are applying worldly standards of success against their godly leaders that they have. And what they are doing is that they are saying, because you follow Paul, you are not mature in your faith. Because you're doing these things, you are wrong." And so Paul, rather than breaking down their arguments, he's going to be showing them the folly of their hearts. And then rather than just let that be, he's going to point to three characteristics of godly maturity for us in, this, in 1 Corinthians 4. And the first characteristic is of godly maturity is servants and subjects to Christ alone, And so this is how we should regard us. This is what Paul says. And who is he referring to, the us, when we see that? He's referring solely to him, to Apollos, and to Peter, the ministers and the apostles of the gospel. And he says, as servants and Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. So Paul is saying, saying that he and Apollos and Peter are all servants and stewards of the, go- of, of the gospel, first and foremost. They serve Christ above all else. They don't serve their ideologies. They don't serve their political factions. They don't serve themselves. They don't serve their convictions, their uh, preferences. And so they serve Christ alone. And so for us, we can't judge others' hearts, allowing the pride of our heart to direct our relationships. But look at that word steward. What does it mean to be a steward of God? Just by a show of hands, have you ever seen Downton Abbey? Am I just a few of us? (laughs) It's worth your time. Maybe not the last season. But (laughs) uh, um, the idea of a steward is someone who is Overseeing the head butler, who's overseeing the whole house, they are entrusted with the wealth of the estate. But they, to be a good steward, they are not skimming that wealth for themselves. They are managing it. They're taking care of it. They're dispensing it. And so, what they a successful and a good steward is someone who manages the resources that of the master well. And so, uh, what we see here is that the steward shares in the glory of the master not taking riches for himself but tending to and dispensing the things entrusted to him this is paul saying he says we have been stewarded with the gospel and we are dispensing the revelation of who christ is to you so paul's clearly saying that god has entrusted him with the truths of the gospel and he reports to god and not to the corinthians church look at verse three but with me it is a very small thing that i should be judged by you or by any human 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 court in fact i do not even judge myself and so the christians at corinth are doing one of two things with paul and his ministry either they are elevating paul and peter and apollos and they're saying these guys are sinless these guys are perfect these guys are amazing And there's nothing wrong with them. Or there's the other faction that says, Paul is the worst. He has the worst things to say. He doesn't care about us. He doesn't love us. But they're also just applying their own worldly standards against Paul. And so Paul's saying, I don't care what you think. And so they are saying that they, not the word of God, is the standard of Uh, uh, they're, they're the word of god is the standard of what a leader should be worldly standards of success and acclaim and philosophical insight and it's their own convictions and their own preferences determining the leader's effectiveness so the corinthians effectively are putting themselves on god's throne judging the apostles by worldly success and what paul is not saying paul's not saying that he is above scrutiny Paul's not saying that he is above sin, that he is above these of correction, and he's not giving Christian leaders and all Christians everywhere grounds to abuse the church. He wants the leaders to be accountable to the church. He wants the leaders to be accountable to the word of God. We cannot be accountable to man-made standards of success and maturity. And so he's simply dismissing all of these unbiblical standards of leadership and maturity. And so in pride, the Corinthians have placed themselves in, in God's place, judging their leaders and other Christians, gossiping about them, slandering them, uh, slandering their leaders, resenting them, assuming the, wet, the worst of their leaders without actually talking to their leaders. And they've allowed pride to fracture the body of Christ, and all while not talking to the leader directly, Paul, Peter, and Apollos. Effectively, the Corinthians are judging the apostles and every Christian in those opposing factions by their standards. And as a caution, we can't even know the depths of our own heart. How can we presume to know the hearts of others? Jeremiah 17 tells us, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Our hearts naturally have a bend towards pride and sin. And so we, if we can't even know that our motives are pure, we sure can't know that the motives of others are pure also. Which is why Paul is saying that his conscience is clear in verse four for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. Another translation says, justified. It is the Lord who judges me. You see, we all struggle with people's judgments. We are it's so important for us to know that their approval doesn't justify us, that their disapproval doesn't condemn us either. And so Paul understood that God is the highest authority, not others. Some of us might be thinking that it's a bad thing for God to be our judge. But if someone is falsely accusing us, if someone is slandering us and we are innocent, God being being our judge means that he's on our side. means that he is with us and that he is for us and that he's going to mete out justice on our behalf and we are justified through serving God and desiring to please him look at what verse 5 says therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time before the Lord comes who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart then each one will receive his condom commendation from God and so God is giving Uh, God is going to be the one who justifies leaders and Christians. God is going to be the one who condemns and who is going to uh, either condemn or approve us at the final day of judgment. He's going to either reward his faithful servants and stewards or he's going to punish his unfaithful, poor stewards of the gospel. Now, effectively, Paul is saying Christ is our master. Nobody else And so, as we think about that, Christ determines. Christ is the one who determines our effectiveness. Christ is the one who determines our rewards, not each other. And as we see that, Christ is the one who stands supreme over all things. And so Paul then gives us the second characteristic of godly maturity, and that's a humble and lowly life. The Corinthians not only judge their leaders, the apostles, but they also judged each other. And in pride, they're applying non-biblical worldly standards and worldly wisdom against one another. And Paul's correcting that in verse 6, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one another. And so Paul desires that we live out the gospel truths in our lives, that we desire to be people of the word of God, And we apply everything that we see and hear to the Word of God first. This is how we think biblically. This is how we think what God is is doing in our world. And this is not going to, well, this is what the world says is successful. This is what the world says I should be doing. But applying ourselves to the Word of God first and foremost. And so as we think about these things, the Corinthians church, they're looking around and they're saying that person is not mature in their faith. They voted for the wrong person. They are not really caring about what's happening around in Corinth in the world right now. They don't care about philosophy. They don't care about all of these things. And they have effectively created their own standard of what Christian maturity looks like. And in doing this, they puff themselves up and say, Well, I'm doing these things. I know all that there is to know about what's happening in Rome. I'm mature in my faith because I voted for this person. I'm mature in my faith because I care about philosophy. I care about what's happening in the world. And they're puffing themselves up like an animal protecting its territory. And this idea of puffing up is going to be one of Paul's favorite terms that he's going to come back to again and again through Corinthians. That We cannot puff ourselves up against using worldly standards. And so for those Christians who are puffed up against brothers and sisters, Paul asks three pointed questions to humble the proud. First one, what makes you different? Verse seven, for who sees anything different in you? Question two, what are you lacking? What do you have that you did not receive? And then the third question, why do you boast in yourself? Why do you boast as if you did not receive it? And so in these lines of questioning, Paul is exposing the root of the heart issue, and that's pride. Paul's pointing out that if there's any difference between you and another person, that is because God has made them that way. If you are lacking anything, it's because God hasn't given you those things. That everything that we have is given directly from God, and we cannot boast in things that we don't have the psalmist says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything in the earth belongs to God. Everything that we have has been given to us directly from God. And recognizing that prevents us from being prideful. We have no reason to be proud of our accomplishments. We have no reason to boast of the life that we have. Everything that we have has been given directly God. From God, Yet the Corinthians are boasting in themselves, and it means that the pride, this pride has been so pervasive in the church then and now. We boast in our accomplishments, and Paul uses the next few verses to expose the falliness of worldliness in the church. Verse 8, Already you have all you want, already you've become rich. To the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, Paul's saying to the Corinthians, you're well fed, we're hungry, you're well clothed, we're homeless, we're destitute. And then he goes and he says, without us you've become kings. For I think that God has exhibited us as apostles, as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we've become a spectacle to the world. He's saying, you're rich, we're poor, you're ruling like kings, we're on display, our shame is on display to the whole world, and we are hated, we are despised, we are rejected. He goes on, he says, we are fools in Christ, you are are wise in Christ. We are weak. You are strong. You are held in honor. We are held in disrepute. He's saying you're highly respected. We're overlooked, if not hated. And these are the apostles he's referring to. But do you notice the sarcasm that Paul is, these texts, these, these verses are drenching and oozing with Sarcasm. Paul's taking the pride of the church seriously, but he's wanting to show how destructive the nature of pride can be in our lives and in our churches. Pride creates a false sense of who we are, both for the Corinthians and us. We puff ourselves up comparing ourselves to each other. Well, I'm, at least I'm not like that person over there. And we. We compare ourselves to each other so we can better tear each other down. And so what happens is that when we puff ourselves up, we're not able to love the body of Christ as God has commanded us. But we put on this facade and we hide who we really are. Either we build ourselves up and we say, look at me, look how much I've accomplished, look at how well I'm surviving in this world, all the while our heart is slowly decaying inside. Or we do the opposite, where we say, I'm the worst person to have ever stepped on the world. I'm a failure, I'm broken, and we, we in pride, both of, we go to both extremes. Either I'm the best, or I'm the absolute worst. And so the gospel tells us who we really are in light of, of who Christ is. And then Paul shows the sum of what the world thinks of the apostle, how characteristics directly oppose to how we think we should live verse 12: When we're viled, we bless. The worldly wisdom says, "When you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you back. When you take from me, I'm going to take from you back an eye for an eye, right? A tooth for a tooth. This is the worldly wisdom. I'm going to, to take and do what you have done to me. I'm going to get vengeance by doing these things. But Paul says, "When reviled, we bless. When we're hated, when we're abused, when we're slandered we become blessers. Paul says, when persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. When we are slandered by our friends and our family and by our enemies, we don't respond in kind. We respond in kindness. We respond in humility. He says, we have become and are still like the scum of the earth, the refuse of all things. See all of these characteristics that Paul just listed out, the world thinks is useless. The world says, I have no need for all of these things. And they effectively think less of us. They think less of Christians who apply these things. Well, you're just weak. You're just can't, you have no backbone. You're not standing up for yourself. But Paul is comparing himself with these attributes to the life of Christ. When Christ was slandered, he prayed for his enemies. When Christ was persecuted, he endured. When Christ was the scum of the world at the point of the the crucifixion, he came back in power at the point of of, the resurrection. So all of these characteristics are Paul is saying this is us modeling Christ for you in a humble and lowly manner. And so for the Corinthians and for us, are we living to please people of the world? Are we living to please ourselves or are we living to please God who is our master? From there Paul desires that the church in Corinth would grow into spiritual maturity. So he gives the third characteristic of godly maturity, and that is someone who is imitating the life of Christ. Verse 14. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you, to warn you as my beloved children. This whole chapter, Paul's desire is not to beat us down. Paul's desire is to not feel, make us feel ashamed and afraid of these things but he wants to he's using these words to correct us to correct our hearts he says for i've become your father in christ jesus through the through the gospel and so he's speaking to the church as a father and this is a fun little tidbit this is the first and only place in the new testament where paul refers to himself as a father it comes in a very sarcastic hard word but it is a hard word for us you see, he planted this church five years before he wrote this letter. He spent two years with this church. He knows the people who are in this church. He knows them well. And he is the one who brought the gospel to the church in Corinth. This church in Corinth exists because of his ministry. So he's speaking out of love and care and tenderness. And it's like seeing kids, his kids walk out into a busy street, and he's raising his voice in a stern way to correct that. It's like seeing a child go to touch an open flame, and he's using a stern word to direct them away from that. He's using a stern word because he wants the church to change course. He wants what's best for the church. And the word for the church is necessary if, it's, if we desire to grow in our faith. But we finally get to why Paul is writing this whole chapter, and it's in verse 16. I urge you, then, be imitators of me. Paul's saying he has a new way of maturity, a new way of serving, and it's, what, it's this way that he's already shown you. It's the gospel. It's the gospel taking root in our life, and it results in humility. It results in us recognizing that we are sons and daughters of God and that God loves us. But this is this humility is quite the opposite to what the world says. Again, the world says puff yourself up, build yourself up, put out all of your accomplishments on display and the gospel says those are meaningless. And so he's saying let me show you the example of what it looks like to follow Jesus, to grow in Jesus and to be a godly leader, to be mature in your faith. Some of them might be thinking, imitate you, Paul? Your life is a hot mess express. Paul would say, yes, imitate me, not because of the struggles, but despite them. And he would say, imitate me often because these struggles have led to the glory and the power of Jesus shining through in my life and in the world. And this is the gospel that Jesus, in love, stepped into humanity to save and redeem us from our brokenness, from our sin. He paid all of our sins, all of our debts, making us sons and daughters of Him. And through that, He has forgiven us all of our transgressions against Him, all of our sins all while graciously giving us all things to pursue a life of godliness, to pursue him, to know him, and to be reconciled to him. Just the tip of the iceberg on what the gospel does in our lives, and we can only taste that gospel power in a state of humility and not in a state of our own pride and accomplishments. And this is why Paul is emphasizing, be imitators of godly leaders who serve Christ with a humble heart. Everywhere Paul went, whether it was Rome, whether it was Corinth, whether it was Jerusalem, he preached and lived the same gospel. He lived the same pattern for everyone. And the message that he preached was Christ crucified and Christ resurrected from the dead. It's the same message that we preach today. And so for us and for him, we cannot grow in our faith, we cannot grow into maturity if we are not imitating people who are doing these things for us. Yes, we can know who God is by reading our Bible and by praying, but the emphasis of Christian maturity is in community. We cannot grow to be mature Christians apart from the body of Christ. We need each other. We need an example to look to, someone who knows us, someone that we know. We need someone who's invested in our lives to help us grow into maturity. In a word, this is called discipleship. This is the crux of who we are. We are commanded to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is discipleship. Jesus had 12 disciples, and those disciples had disciples, and those disciples had disciples, and disciples make disciples. And so we cannot strive to grow in our faith by ourselves. We need community. We need someone who is pointing you back to understand the truth of the gospel, who Jesus is, who we are in light of the gospel. We need someone to imitate, someone who knows us, cares for us, loves us, and in turn, we need to imitate the gospel for older and younger and newer and not yet believers. We need to be imitating someone and we need to imitate or be a model for someone else. And so Paul says, be imitators of godly leaders who serve Christ with a humble heart. So godly maturity, godly wisdom is more powerful than what the world can ever offer paul goes on in verse 19 i will find out not the talk of these arrogant people but their power for the kingdom of god does not consist in talk but in power meaning pride boasts of power it talks big look at how powerful look at how much i have but at the end of the day it has no power to for lasting change Though on the other hand, the gospel talks small, and the gospel has more power than the world can ever even fathom. So which would you prefer, puffing yourself up and having no power in your life to deal with sin, no power in your life to face each day, no power in your life to uh, wake up every morning, or... Humbly submitting ourselves to Christ and abiding in His power, which can kill sin, and abiding in His power to face each day. I'll tell you, the godly maturity, godly wisdom produces a life of abundance where a life of pride produces emptiness and nothing. So as we think about this message, who is the example to you of godly maturity? What qualities do you look for? What characteristics do you say, that is godliness and that is worldliness? For me personally, I look for a guy who loves his spouse and his kids. That's where it starts for me. If I want to grow as a spouse to my, or to, to my wife, I need to find someone who loves his wife, who loves his kids. I look for guys who love the Word, not just, uh, it's one thing to know what the Word of God says and pull out verses. It's another to see a passion and love for Scripture. I personally have looked for guys who are humble and who love Jesus. The older I get, the more I see it in folks, the more I see that it re- happening in people's lives. But Looking back at the course of my life, the guys that I have looked at, the guys that I have modeled and who I have invited to to be that model for me, they have played a significant role in why I'm here today. In the times of extreme discouragement, they were there praying for me, encouraging me. In the times of just scared of the next step, whatever that next step is, they were there telling me how, what they saw God doing in my life. And they were there walking alongside me, constantly pointing me back to Christ. It's easier, it's very easy to admire leaders from afar, or even online, we have more access to pastors, all and Christian leaders all over the world than we ever have before. But I think it raises an important question. Does that, do they, do they know you? Can they give you a call and say, this is what's going on, this is what I see going on in your life? I think a better question is, is, do you actually know them? Yeah, they may preach good, they may have really cool things to say, but do you know, really, the conduct and character of their life? We cannot learn to grow in our faith Simply by just ingesting information. We need someone walking alongside us in through the thick of it. And so we're not designed to accumulate knowledge, but our faith is designed to share what God has been teaching us with others. Let me say, I spent the last year on our elder board and I've learned some things about our church. You want to know what I've learned? Our elders love you our elders pray for you our elders are concerned about where you are in your faith and they want to encourage you to grow in your faith they pray for you they pray for your families they pray for our church and for the direction of our church and the, you know it's not just these five men on our elder board who are who are the only godly leaders at restoration god has given us godly men and women who love him who want to serve him who want to make him more important than the things of the world and so god has brought all of these leaders to restoration church and not just leaders you could be mature in your faith and not be a leader but god has brought mature people in their faith As an example to each other. And from a worldly perspective, not all of the leaders at our church are winners. Not all are the most powerful, but they have learned something very important. They have learned Paul's example and the example of others that they have modeled humility, that they depend on God daily, and they recognize that He is the source of their power and their growth and their maturity. So the question is, who are you looking to imitate godly maturity? And the other question is, is who are you modeling godly maturity for? Not sure where to find someone to imitate. We've got life groups. We have Christians who are committed to each other, to grow with each other. You want to see what it looks like to live out your faith in the context of community? Join a life group. You want to see what it looks like to live out your calling and serve the local church? Join a serve team. You want to find someone who is older and wiser and just that you respect, that you admire? Invite them out for coffee. Invite them out for a meal. Get to know them. Ask them, what is the one thing that you have learned about being a parent? One thing that you've learned about being a grandparent? Ask those questions. Get to know them. Why? Because discipleship is best done in relationship. And then as you are in a mutual relationship with someone who is modeling godly maturity for you and you are in a relationship where you are being the model for godly maturity man it's in these mutual relationships that we push each other to know christ and to make make christ known in the world in our in our lives and this is how god has designed us to grow into christian maturity through relationship as genesis 1 tells us it's not good for us to be alone we can't grow in our faith all by ourselves. We need the body of Christ. We need people all through different stages of experiences to help us navigate the life alongside us. The last thing that I have for you this morning, pray for your leaders. Encourage your leaders. It has been a hard year, but it is hard in ministry all the time. How are you doing at praying encouraging your leaders. You see, God has given you leaders as a gift to help you grow in your relationship. They love you. They care for you. I gotta say, I think God has given restoration some fantastic leaders. When we think about the events of the last year, man, these men and women have loved us. They've loved Jesus. They haven't allowed All of the things happening in our world to distract us from the fact that we are still a body of Christ. They have encouraged us. Most importantly, they have been faithful to point us back to the hope and the glory of Christ, not pointing back to the folly of worldliness. God's faithful servants deserve your love, respect, obedience, and most importantly, prayerfulness. Church you are cloud